how does one man convince hundreds of people, even though what he's saying makes absolutely no sense, counterintuitive, not in your best interest, and yet still he gets all these people to just follow him and, and do exactly what he says, even though it's clear that he's sick, it's clear that he has problems, it's clear that there's something wrong, and yet one man talks all these people and just doing exactly the wrong thing, in my opinion. It's the power of charisma. I'm not talking about modern American politics here. If you've ever heard of the Jonestown Massacre and the charismatic cult leader Jim Jones, how does one man convince a thousand people to kill themselves? Join us tonight if you dare as we talk about the People's Temple, and in particular, the Jonestown Massacre. From a child born into this world, we are taught what to believe. Close-minded, we become fearful to be deceived. Still, we desire to know what lies beyond that locked door. The art of the storyteller, conjuring tales of legend and lore. History hidden, lost knowledge, things forgotten and the unknown. These are the things that direct us and will set the tone. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Nightmares on the Lost Highway. The story of Jonestown begins with Jones, a white minister who preached unconventional socialist and progressive ideas to mostly an African-American congregation called, no. called the People's Temple. Now, I'll say Jones, if, if you look up the pictures of him, he's a striking character. Jet black hair, the big black sunglasses. Always wore those. The, the, the white or black priestly looking garb. He was a striking figure and, and arguably, you know, I'll say a handsome man. Uh, clearly charismatic to a degree that very few people could ever hope to achieve. Yeah, charismatic if, plus 10. If only he could have turned this into something positive. But yeah, you know, you were, you were giving us the background on the, the temple. temple. At the height of its popularity during the 1970s, the temple had a membership estimated in the thousands and was courted by local politicians in San Francisco, including Harvey Milk. But by 1977, Jones had grown paranoid from the media scrutiny over the temple's suspicious activities. So he and his numerous followers moved to an agricultural settlement, a.k.a. Jonestown, in Guyana, the remote county of East Venezuela. Now, of course, before we get to that point, we're going to do a little background here. Who was Jones? Who? What was the deal here? Why did they get... How did Jones have enough sway in America to be in the government of San Francisco? And then suddenly he's this outcast living in the middle of the jungle in Guyana. Or Guyana, Guyana, however you want to say it. He formed his temple in Indianapolis in 1955. And they practiced what they called apostolic socialism. The temple preached, and I quote, those who remain drugged with the opiate of religion had to be brought to enlightenment, socialism. He had interest in Stalin, Mao Zedong, and Hitler from a very young age, and would praise Stalin and Lenin as his heroes. Now, of course, an organization like that, in a place like Indiana, it's going to draw some criticisms. Absolutely. So after drawing said criticisms in Indiana... The temple moved to Redwood Valley, California in 1965. It opened branches in L.A., San Francisco, and other places by the early 70s, and eventually moved their temple headquarters to San Francisco. Well, there, the, the temple and, and Jones himself became very influential in local politics, 
including to helping get George Moscone elected mayor in 1975. Now, Moscone would go and appoint Jones as the chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority Commission. So you have this charismatic cult leader. At this point, it's a cult, right? I mean, it, he's already yeah, full-blown cult. And he's part of the government of San Francisco. Now, because of his influence, Jones would have access to many political figures, including VP candidate Walter Mondale and First Lady Rosalind Carter, to the point that even leading all the way up to the Jonestown massacre, if if Mondale knew someone was going to go visit, he'd, he'd ask him, hey, tell me how Jones is doing when you get back. Like, he really yeah. was concerned about the guy, wanted to know how he was doing. Now, one thing I will say, I found at the True Foundation, a lot of the people that were interviewed, survivors, people who were members that got out before they moved to, to Guyana, one thing that was a constant, the church did not seem like a church. Instead, they described it more as a family, and family always looked after one another. Yeah. That was the core oh, value. Oh, to the point where like a lot of the followers would call Jim father or dad. Yes. Now, in fall of 1973, just prior to the election year, there was a newspaper article critical of the temple, and then the, the defection of eight temple members kind of destabilized the temple just a little bit. Shook it to its foundation. Yeah. And so temple attorney Tim Stone and Jones prepared a contingency plan, and part of that was they would flee to Guyana as, in part because of its economy, in part because of its politics, but also in part due to their extradition treaty with the United States, which I'm going to assume would make it very difficult to bring him back if they ever found him guilty of something. How convenient. And so in 1974, Jones and the Temple negotiated the lease of over 3,800 acres of jungle, basically. 3,800 acres. Yeah, 150 miles west of Georgetown. Now, at this point in time, 500 members of the Temple went there to begin construction on what would become known as Georgetown. Like you said, the People's Temple Agricultural Project. Mm-hmm. Jones kind of saw Jonestown as what was going to be a socialist paradise and a sanctuary for media scrutiny. Basically, he could get away, rule as he pleased. And not have to worry about the pesky media watching what he was doing. So Jones reached an agreement with Guyana to allow Temple members to to migrate in mass to Jonestown. Uh, now he stated he he had to show that they were going to be skilled and progressive. They were going to contribute. Uh, he also bragged that he showed off an envelope containing five hundred thousand dollars, which he intended to invest in Guyana. And I want to interrupt here now again. The charismatic Jim Jones told his congregation he he was very open about this, which I thought was, again, proof of his charisma. He addresses, you know, his whole congregation, and he goes, now, here's what you guys need to do. You need to sell off everything you have. Donate your entire life savings, every dollar that you have. Let's raise money for this trip and this building of a city there. He told his congregation they would truly find happiness there, a world without interruption, pressures of the world, a place of peace and tranquility, and one free of racism in particular. There they would be left undisturbed to live their lives peacefully. He described these attacks of against the People's Temple as simply the state's and the government's way to attempt to control them. He didn't decline any of them. He wanted his congregation to know. He taught that everyone was equal and no one should have to pay taxes or to go hungry or be treated differently due to race or religion. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? I'm ready to go. Yeah, right? right? Well, that was... Mr. Jim Jones, father, what he did best. High charisma, could put a spin on just about any story to make it suit his ambitions. Shortly after the People's Temple left the United States, a handful of government-affiliated individuals and news crew decided they were going to chase them there. Well, in the summer of 1977, which would ironically be when I was born, 
Jones and several hundred Temple members fled from San Francisco to head to Jonestown. Uh, they were being investigated by local media, and apparently an article was to be published in the New West magazine that detailed allegations of abuse by former Temple members. And so, you know, Jones and, and, and crew decided it was time to, to, to leave. And again, that, that extradition treaty might might have been a part of this, you know. Yeah, we're getting the hell out of Dodge. Yeah, whatever you find me guilty of, you can't get me back. So after his migration to Jonestown, uh, the, the, the settlement actually became incredibly overcrowded. Uh, the population was slightly under 900 at its peak in 1978, so it was not meant to accommodate that many people. Now, apparently, after Jones arrived in Jonestown, life changed significantly. They they had been allowed to engage in media, you know, watch movies and TV from Georgetown. That stopped. Uh, he immediately put a stop to that and replaced all that with Soviet propaganda shorts and documentaries on American social problems. He was all about telling his followers how bad America was. America was a mess. It needed to be fixed. Now, his route to fixing America was outright socialism or communism. You know, and he thought, obviously, that he knew better on how to rule. Bureaucratic requirements pulled from Jonestown's labor force. And so buildings started to fall into disrepair. Weeds were growing up in the fields. And it's my understanding that the the, the soil wasn't great anyway. They were right. never going to be able to be self-sufficient. They couldn't grow enough crops to, to feed as many people as they had. School studies and lectures changed dramatically. Uh, they w- they all changed into Jones's discussions about revolution and their enemies. You know, making sure his people understood they had an enemy, and that is a common political you know ploy is to have an enemy, Propaganda. make your people afraid of somebody, and then and, and let them know that you can fix that. I'm the savior. Come to me. So for the first several months there, temple workers were working six days a week from 6:30 a.m. to 6 p.m. with a one-hour lunch. Somewhere in mid-78, Jones's health had started to decline, and so his wife began managing Jonestown's day-to-day operations. She reduced the work week to eight hours a day, five days a week. But again, nobody could watch any TV or film in Jonestown after a certain point. They didn't want them exposed to outside media that might, you know, taint their vision. And even when they did watch any kind of outside media, it had to have a temple staffer present to interpret the material. I don't know exactly what interpret means, but obviously, you know, change the message. They would include uh, criticism of perceived capitalist propaganda as part of that, and also praise for Marxist and Leninist messaging from, from communist nations. Apparently, they idolized the Soviet Union. That was a big part of their deal. Now, because of their poor soil, again, like I talked about, they were not completely self-sufficient. Most meals would simply consist of rice or beans, greens. Occasionally, you'd have meat and eggs, but not very often. And despite having access to an estimated $26 million by late 1978, Jones lived in a tiny communal house just like everybody else. He did have his own private chambers where the rest of them lived in kind of a platoon bunker kind of types yeah jones's house had fewer people living there and they were his hand-picked like no it wasn't just anybody lived with him uh he also allegedly had a refrigerator that he kept stocked with eggs meat fruit salad and sodas so the guy you know rules for thee but not for me kind of do as i say not as i do now to your point uh before jones arrived there was uh, open media there was communication and stuff with the early people i found uh, actual recording of some of those people that were interviewed and uh, here's what they had to say one uh, lady says this is the most beautiful place i have ever been in my entire life another one says we have found true sanctuary here and it is all because of father jim jones only through him was this possible Uh, yet another was we will never want to return back to the states there's nothing for us there 
So these people brainwashed, programmed, whatever you want to say. This is before Jim Jones even landed on the area. These are the workers that you're describing. They're being worked almost to death nonstop, and they were firm believers. Yeah, also in 1978, you know, after Jones arrived, they started having some medical problems, some health-based things. Um, I would say probably comparable to, oh, what's the one? you? Oh, malaria, something similar to that. They, they had, like, complaints of diarrhea and, and, and stomach intestinal issues. Clean water. And, yeah, you're living out in the jungle yeah. doing the best you can, and you don't exactly Mosquito have all the resources bites, I'm sure, you need. And, yeah. uh, now, punishments in Jonestown were, were kind of crazy. Hold on, what punishments? Well, if you don't do what Father <laughs> says. Uh, but yeah, they would use punishments against uh, community members accused of having disciplinary problems. And sometimes that disciplinary problem could simply be questioning you know, the status quo. Typical punishment included imprisonment in a six by four by three plywood box for adults. Now, this sounds very reminiscent to uh, Vietnam camps. Yeah, that's I crazy. Mean, seriously. Children who got out of line were often forced to spend the night at the bottom of a well. If they were exceptionally bad, they would be suspended upside down. Oh, my gosh. Um, now, anyone who tried to escape, if they were stopped, they would be drugged with Thorazine, sodium pentothal, chloral hydrate, Demerol, or Valium. If you recognize any of those, those are all meant to subdue the mind. Uh, sodium pentothal is supposedly truth serum. So these were all things meant to, to subdue the mind more than the body. Uh, and, of course, armed guards patrolled day and night to enforce Jonestown's rules. Uh, so the idea, like, it was almost like a prison camp, if you think about it in that respect. Like, Absolutely. they had armed guards. And some of these armed guards were not Jonestown citizens, but were actually, like, outside mercenaries that were hired by Jim Jones. I mean, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Now, Jones would conduct what he called white knights from time to time. That was a, a special uh, secret word terms yeah. that it would be broadcasted over the loudspeakers. So, so on these white nights, everyone would be gathered up, and members would be given four options. You could attempt to flee to the Soviet Union, which, again, they, they sort of idolize that. You could commit revolutionary suicide, which is a term that comes up a lot. You could stay in Jonestown, or you could flee into the jungle. So, I mean, they were, and, and he would just do this. Like, this wasn't yeah, like this a punishment. Was, this was just like, hey, this, we're doing this tonight. Yep. This was, uh, the White Knight was uh, described as, you know, they had code talk, basically, that he would go on a loudspeaker. Again, very reminiscent of a prison camp at like Vietnam or yeah. something. Broadcast, no matter what time of day or night it was, it may be two o'clock in the morning. When White Knight, when those words were spoke, that was an extreme emergency meeting situation. All hands on deck. It didn't matter who you are, what you're doing. You stop and you come to the pavilion and we're going to talk about stuff. And again, he never attempted to hide anything. They, no. they talked of mass suicide as a last precursor if needed be. Oh, well, at least twice after one of these White Knight events, simulated mass suicides were rehearsed. Rehearsed? They would, they would gather everyone up, including the children, and give them a small glass of red liquid to drink, and they were told that the liquid contained poison and would kill them in 45 minutes. They I, genuinely believe this. Again, we're not, this is a special medicine that'll help you. Yeah. This is poison. This is going to kill you. This is what we're going to practice. Yeah. When they didn't die as they expected to, Jones would then explain to all of them this had been a loyalty test, and they had passed. They were loyal to Jonestown and to Jim. Wow. What so, a piece of work. Now, of course, while he was in Jonestown, Jones's paranoia and drug use increased dramatically. He became increasingly fearful of a government raid on the commune. 
Uh, he would call alert, alert, alert on the loudspeakers, and members would gather in the central pavilion, and there they would be surrounded by armed guards, armed with guns and crossbows. And and he was just because he he legitimately thought they were in like being prosecuted. He, he was out of his mind. One of these drills lasted for six days, where they had to be gathered in the central pavilion, and 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 they called this the six day siege. And they were talking about when like when people would would fall asleep, they would go around and like hit them with the butts of the guns, and I mean sleep deprivation. This is all kinds of messed up. So after the six day siege, Jones began to really distrust the Guyanese government. And uh, him and Temple members began reaching out to other countries for aid. Now, a consul for the Soviet Union who was assigned to Georgetown did visit Jonestown for a couple of days. And he said the Soviet Union would like to send, quote, our deepest and most sincere greetings to the people of this first socialist and communist community of the United States of America in Guyana and in the world. And then following his visit, members of the cult, cult Temple, Let's, let's, you know, <laughs> what, however you want to phrase it, but they would meet with him weekly to discuss a potential Soviet exodus. So they were looking to get out, even, even though they weren't, you know, they still trusted Jones at this point, I guess, but some of they were still wanting to leave. Now, again, his, Jones's health was in notable decline. In 78, he was informed of a possible lung infection, which he announced to his followers as lung cancer. Now, why would he do that? Now, of course, he's he's trying to play on their heartstrings. Hey, dad's dad's dying. Father's guys. father's sick. I'm sick, and I need you here. I need you to take care of me. In the last two weeks of Jonestown alone, people said he lost between thirty and forty pounds in two weeks. Wow! So his health was in severe decline by the last days of Jonestown. He'd begun to experience temporary blindness, convulsions. Uh, in late 1978, he began to experience what they called grotesque swelling of the extremities. So, I mean, he had some health issues. He was suffering from insomnia, uh, sometimes awake for three to four days at a time. Now, you know, by the end of Jonestown, he was not well. Normally, he was a well-spoken man. I mean, that's, that was sort of what he was known for. But his speech started to become slurred when he was in public, sometimes in his radio announcements over the loudspeaker. He wouldn't even be able to finish sentences. He was just losing, now, losing it, basically. To set the pace before this occurred to his health, we need to paint the picture both ways. He, while all of this was truly going on, before he became ill, it was very common, and you can see videos, actual footage. He is a man of the people, if you will. He often would go out and embrace, hug, dance with other people. But you, I mean... But you know, to see pictures of the guy, there's still... There's something about to, him. I was going to say, a darkness. I don't know if that's... But you yeah. look at him and you're like, there's something. And maybe that's our bias, knowing the, the end of the story. Could, could but be. to look at him, you, you you know, maybe he was friendly and maybe... But there seemed to be certain... Like, he, there was something there. There, there was one in particular video clip I watched, and I, I, I don't remember the, uh, the lady's name, but she apparently was crippled to some degree, was, I won't say in a wheelchair, but... You could tell she could not get up, uh, Afro-American, and he had went out, and you could tell a lot of people were like flocking around him, and he was reaching out like a, like a con, like he was on a concert, you know, touching their hands the fe- and faith healer, yeah, faith healer type. But he walked past this lady, stops, pauses, kind of parts the crowd, goes to her, helps her up, embraces her, calls her, you know, Mrs. Martha, you know, I'm so glad you're here with us. I mean, he definitely needed to be linked with those people to keep them doing what he wanted. But 
that particular video just, I don't know, I, I'm imagining that woman probably sold off her entire life savings, everything. And, you know, you got to, there was the man there, but he's like, you know, all of these people are, are paving my streets in gold, so to speak. Yeah. I'm going to at least give them a little bit of a credit, a tap on the forehead. You know, I'm going to remember them. Just creepy. Yeah, there, there was something about the guy for sure, one way or the other. So on November 14th, back in California, Leo Ryan, a California congressman, announces that he would he, he intends to visit Jonestown. Now, he was friends with the father of Bob Houston. Bob Houston was a temple member in California whose body was found mutilated near train tracks on October 5th, 1976, three days after a taped telephone conversation in which he discussed leaving the temple. Obviously, the parents suspected foul play. And, you know, considering what Jones was known for, that that seemed pretty pretty plausible. I want to go into a little bit of this Leo J. Ryan, the congressman. He is described as a maverick, a wild card, maybe one of the more forgotten people of the Jonestown tragedy. Uh, from California, a Democrat, Ryan was an unconventional politician for sure. He once had himself briefly incarcerated at Folsom State Prison to see what the prison conditions were like there. He also went to Canada to investigate the hunting of baby seals personally and infiltrated a group. Ryan became involved with the People's Temple issues after hearing some of his own friends and personal contacts. Uh, some of the relative stories were being held against their will. He wrote a letter to Jim Jones requesting an invitation to visit. And I think at one point he did receive a yes. However, that changed multiple times. Yes uh as as the trip went in so i just wanted to kind of intervene that this is not and i hate to use the word normal politician congressman but this guy was a wild card yeah i, I guess on november 16th they arrived and ryan and his group were refused access to jonestown at that point in time so they stayed the night and on the morning of the 17th the settlement was informed that ryan would fly out anyway he was gonna go he was gonna visit jonestown one way or again other. this is that maverick aspect yeah now, only four others would be able to accompany Ryan on his flight to Jonestown because of how small the airstrip was. It was only, like, I think a Cessna, which, you know, like four or five seats, you know, and a pilot. So there weren't very many that could go out. Now, initially, they weren't going to be allowed in. And however, they were eventually allowed access to Jonestown. And that night, they attended a musical reception at the Central Pavilion. And while there, Jones would again publicly speak. He was known for that. And in his, his speech, he said that he felt like he was a dying man, and he ranted about government conspiracies the whole time. Mm -hmm. at, that, at that point, two members that night would attempt to defect, and one of them tried to pass a note to Ryan, but it unintentionally passed it to a member of the temple, I believe. Uh, actually, it was NBC uh, Newsman. Yeah, they passed it to the wrong person, and then they found out about it, and it became quickly apparent by the reactions of the temple there was something, something not right in Jones. Well, and Ryan even told the family members, some of the family members actually came with him, that we're going to take back anybody that wants to come back with us. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of his promise. Well, early the next day on the 18th, which is the day of the, the infamous day of Jonestown, but early that next day, 11 members walked out of Jonestown. They walked the opposite direction from the airstrip that Ryan had flown in from. I guess probably they thought they'd have a better chance of escaping. And if I remember correctly, they did actually get away. Now, along with that group, there were many that would ask to leave with Ryan's group when he left. And, mm. and like you said, Ryan had made that invitation. Anybody who wants to come is free to come. Then it was to the point where it was like, we can't take all these people. Yeah. We're going to need more planes. So on this fateful day, November 18th, 1979, most of Ryan's group left that day in a large dump truck. 
again, to kind of set the pace as the congressman was flying over and all of this, he again was very open with the congregation. These people are coming. These people are coming for us. Yeah. Um, he used scare tactics to gain and keep control over his congregation. Since a lot of his membership were blacks, African-Americans, being in the time of the 1970s especially, he used this to his utmost benefit. Uh, he would tell his congregation that the United States, in order to get them to stay here in uh, Guyana, that the U.S. government was building Nazi-style concentration camps for the blacks. He told them that radical cult groups such as the KKK were being put in control of state boundaries by the government, and they were building great walls around the entire United States itself. When those stories seemed to lose their luster, he would come up with something new, such as the fear of nuclear war, and how their former location there in California was a primary target, as well as all the U.S., and that obviously staying here in Guyana with him was a safer choice. Jim Jones also used several past historical figures' deaths to his benefit. He would uh, preach, literally, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, John F. Kennedy, stating all of these men were trying to go against the government, and they were killed for it. Use this as proof. This is what they're coming here to do to us. Jim Jones put himself in those same shoes and stated the government would come after him. He knew this to be true, and all of his teachings were basically very similar to Martin Luther King's Malcolm X and John F. Kennedy. So again, he was using these scare tactics, stay here with me, we're going to be infiltrated, the congressman is coming, don't believe anything that they say, they're all liars, you know, look at this past history, this is all the proof you need. So on November 18th, 1979, most of Ryan's group leaves that day in a large dump truck. They're heading back to the airship. Ryan himself doesn't leave with them. Shortly after they leave, a temple member grabs Ryan wielding a knife. And while he is unhurt at that point in time, he's told, you need to leave Jonestown. <laughs> so the truck stops and they waited when they, they had heard that Ryan had been attacked. They stopped and they waited. Ryan heads out and he gets on board the, the dump truck with them and they continue on to the airstrip. And there's a small plane there, a little Cessna. They have to wait for it to land. The pilot, they all start to, to get on board, and I think as many as they possibly can, but it isn't many. It's like five, six people. Yeah, yeah. They get about to the end of the airstrip when one of the so-called defectors of the temple pulls a gun and starts shooting people inside the plane. Yeah, while he is inside the plane. So about this same time, another tractor with a trailer shows up at the airstrip loaded with temple members, and they begin firing on the remaining people that were in the dump truck. So they're, they're shooting these people. Now, after Ryan's group left, Marceline Jones makes a broadcast stating everything is all right and the residents need to return to their homes. While that announcement is being made, aides are preparing a large metal tub of grape flavor aid. Now, I say flavor aid. I guess Kool-Aid was very offended when Kool-Aid was associated with this. Oh, yes. And the phrase, drink the Kool-Aid, literally stems from this. Don't Jones drink the Town. Kool-Aid. Yeah. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. You're drinking the Kool-Aid. You know. Ironically, Kool-Aid, um, well, obviously, took very offense to this and saw a huge decline yeah. in sales due to that inexplicable ad campaign. Well, they had this large metal tub full of great flavor aid that they were poisoning with diphenhydramine, promethazine, chloropromazine, chloroquine, chloral hydrate, valium, and cyanide. Apparently they'd been buying cyanide in bulk for a while. Like any of these would do the job. Yeah, Seriously. Any of them individually would do it. Oh my gosh. So 30 minutes later, Jim Jones calls all the members to the pavilion, as he's done many, many times before. And with them gathered, he tells them, quote, one of those people on that plane is going to shoot the pilot. I know that. 
I didn't plan it, but I know it's going to happen. They're going to shoot that pilot, and down comes the plane into the jungle, and we had better not have any of our children left when it's over because they'll parachute in here on us. And they're going to take our children. And he convinces them, and he then urges the followers to participate in, quote-unquote, revolutionary suicide. So the followers begin to drink the poison drink. It killed children in about five minutes. Adults took 20 to 30 minutes. I believe they had to inject the infants. In some cases, they took just the pure poison. Syringe in the right mouth. Right into the mouth. Yeah. One of the, the, well, the main nurse was interviewed earlier on, and I believe she had said uh, they had had like seven newborn infants in just a period of two or three months. So there were a lot of infants, a lot yeah. of children and, and as these people are screaming and they're dying, and, and again, Jones is, is telling them, you know, ignore the screams, ignore, you know, this is all part of the plan. This is the right thing to do. People who didn't fall in line and drink the Kool-Aid, as it were, they were shot trying to escape. Yep. These armed guards that were there that were basically hired mercenaries by Jones. There was uh, some, I, I, I'm not sure where this footage came from. There was some of the footage that actually got some of the wording of that speech that was found in those final moments as he was addressing the congregation. And these are quotes. It is written, no man may take my life yet less I lay down myself. He tells the congregation some spoke up against Jim Jones, but they were quickly put into place by Jones himself stating such rubbish as we win when we lay down. The best testimony we can make is to leave this God forsaken world we deserve better. In those final moments, as he said, take up this medicine, as he described it, here provided. Bold-faced lie here. There will be no pain. You will simply gently go into a sleep. Yeah, I believe there was like violent convulsions, vomiting, foaming in the, foaming mouth. In the mouth. Yes. I mean, they were far they from the truth. Pain. You know, the children, as you were saying, were the first to be put down because of the scare tactics that they're going to come take your children. If you don't do this, they're going to come take your children away from you. Do you want to see that? Help them go into heaven. You know, so they were the first ones to be dosed. You know, others have refused. Like you said, some tried to escape. They were shot in the back of the, in the backs and the heads. You know, and he says, if we can't live in peace, then let us die in peace. Wow. Yeah. A total of 909 people died at the settlement. Then there were there were more deaths at the nearby airstrip at Port Kaituma, and there was a temple-run building in Georgetown where there were where a few temple members had committed suicide at that point. Um, but the name of the settlement, Jonestown, sort of encompasses all of these. So it was, in total, 918 people died in the Jonestown massacre, all but two from cyanide poisoning. Seventy or more were injected against their will. One-third of the victims, 304, were minors or children. Now, he called it revolutionary suicide. He thought, you know, they were changing the world. They were doing the right thing. Now, interesting, Jim Jones had a son that was there affiliated with him. Uh, His name was Stefan. And later on, he was interviewed, and he said, I never mourned the death of my father. I just felt disgust. Now, this is, he was a member of the cult community and all this, but he says the facts are wrong. It was not a mass suicide, but rather a mass murder by my yeah, father. Absolutely, No, and, and the thing is, Jones himself was found dead in his, his little house with a, gun a gunshot shot wound in yes. the head. Yes. Whether that was administered by him or his nurse at the time, no one really knows. According to his son, Stefan, and this is a quote, basically, he said, Dad didn't have the, the kahunas yeah. to shoot himself, so I'm sure he didn't even pull the trigger. Oh, and... and uh, and if you've if you've seen the pictures, you know we talked about what Jim Jones himself looked like and the charismatic man. 
but the pictures of the aftermath of the Jonestown massacre where the bodies, I, I think the way you described it, it looked like a field full of, tr- full of trash. Yes. At, at a glimpse, you, it just looked as like you zoom trash in, and refuse. Yeah, as you get closer, you realize there were just bodies, bodies everywhere. Piled upon one another. People laying next to each other, families holding on to one another, but just body after body after the. I cannot express in words what it looks like seeing the pictures. And like I told Eric, I, doing the research for this one, like I, we've talked about serial killers. We've talked about all kinds of crazy things. But seeing the pictures and reading about what this guy did, this made it me was nauseous. hard to do. Well, this was literally the largest tragedy of American civilian lives lost, uh, even though it wasn't on American soil. They were Americans until 9-11, the Twin Towers attack. You know, early history, I'm, I'm always the historian, so I had to go back, you know, and, and you, you touched upon it, but people have, have wondered and still do today, you know, how Jim Jones, this man who preached racial and social equality, turned evil. Yeah, you'd think, based on, on some of his beliefs, he wasn't, I mean, some of it sounded really good. Even his son stated, I think when he started, he had the best intentions, and then it went just horribly derailed. A gentleman by the name of Tin Redderman explained in a, a, a broadcast Jones's dark qualities of the need to control people, his deceit, his anger towards people who betray or abandon him, he believes could be traced back to his childhood, as we've talked about with many of our other podcasts and people who have taken other lives. His childhood uh, traces back to Indiana. He was a loner in his youth. Jim would entertain his playmates in the loft of his family's barn, and he made them his captive audience. At one time, he even locked up his young friends inside the barn while he performed. Uh, He performed experiments on animals and conducted then funerals for those said animals. And had kids that sometimes at least locked up... can you imagine like peering between the two boards, you know, like you see in some creepy horror movie and they're trying to see what's going on out here and you see young Jim Jones, he's filleting the, the, the farm cat or the dog yeah. and going through funeral rites. Tim Rutterman goes on, he goes, I thought Jimmy, as he was called, was a really weird kid. Jones's childhood friend Chuck Wilmore recalled that in a 2006 documentary, Jonestown, The Life and Death of the People's Temple, He was obsessed with religion. He was obsessed with death. A friend of mine told me that he saw Jimmy kill a cat with a knife. According to Jeff Gwynn's book, The Road to Jonestown, Jones also had an early fascination with Adolf Hitler, as Bill has alluded to. When Hitler committed suicide in April 1945, thwarting enemies who sought to capture and humiliate him, Jimmy was impressed and even made a note, I would have done the same thing. And essentially, he did. Yeah, in the end, he did. Little unknown fact. We'll try to make things a little lighter note here. Yeah. I don't know how we can. Uh, Yeah. Uh, The People's Temple had a pet chimpanzee. Uh, (laughs) He was named Mr. Muggs. Please tell me he wasn't there. I can't make that that good of a story, Bill. But Mr. Muggs was a chimpanzee that Jim Jones claimed uh, he had rescued from scientific experiments. Though, according to Jeff Gwynn's book, The Road to Jonestown, Jones most likely actually purchased mugs from a pet store. Uh, In his Indiana days, Jones once sold pet monkeys door to door. (laughs) I don't know how you get that job. (laughs) Would you like to buy a monkey? How do you get that job? But two, a door to door monkey. A door to door. How many people in Indiana want to buy monkeys? (laughs) 
are we missing the boat here? Now, Muggs became sort of a mascot for the temple uh, under the care of Joyce uh, Touchette, I believe is the way you pronounce her name, whose family were devoted members to the temple. In a 1973 article from the Temple Reporter, the church's publication, he said, uh, Muggs' story, he's only 18 months old and he has the intelligence of a four-year-old child. It may sound anthropomotic, but Muggs will follow every command that Pastor Jones gives and will defend him when anyone comes casually up to pet the chimpanzee or to approach Jones without his permission. So Jones could just get apes to do his bidding. Yeah, like Planet of the <laughs> Apes, literally. Like so many other victims, unfortunately, Mr. Muggs met a tragic end at Jonestown's oh. last day. Uh, the chimpanzee was shot to death. That's harsh. There were some survivors, actually more than what I had thought. Well, no, the the original 11 that defected that morning, they did manage to escape. I know, and that included, there was some high-ranking member of the temple. I don't remember his title, but he was, it it may have even been the lawyer. I don't remember for sure, but it was definitely some high-ranking member of the temple. I don't know, it was their head of security. Head of security walked out, so. Okay. Well, amid the hundreds and hundreds of death, nearly, well, actually over 900, There were a number of survivors in Jonestown on that morning, November 18th, 1978. Hours before the dramatic events unfolded, a group of the 11 temple members, including a mother and her three-year-old son, walked 35 miles to escape under the pretenses of going on a picnic, is what I had. Well, again, like I said, they walked in in a direction that wasn't going to take them to immediately to a settlement. So I think the idea was they were like, oh, well, they're not trying to run away. Yeah, they're not trying to run away. They walked the opposite way of the airstrip, so. Now, two men, Stanley Clayton and an Odell Rhodes, were able to bypass armed security through a combination of luck and deception. Three other temple members, Mike Prokes and brothers Tim and Mike Carter, were sent out on a mission by Jim Jones, aid to deliver a suitcase of money to the Soviet embassy. And there were uh, many followers at the temple outpost that was there in Georgetown. And we didn't talk about that, but before you became a member into the Jonestown area, you would fly to uh, Georgetown there in, in uh, Guyana, and that was kind of where, how do you want to put it, a reprogramming, uh, a classroom setting would kind of prepare you for that next step. So there were a few people that were there, although the command was given out on the CB radio that those people there were also supposed to some, all commit Some of them suicide. did. I think there were eight, maybe, or something like that. One of the most remarkable stories of survival from Jonestown belongs to Hysynth Thrash, an elderly African-American woman who hid underneath her bed in her cabin throughout the whole ordeal. She woke up the following morning and walked out to out of the what was called the Senior Citizens Building, where she saw bodies covered with sheets. She found her sister, uh, Zipporah Edwards, was amongst the dead. In her memoir that she wrote, The Onlyest One Alive, published in 1995, Thrash recalled there were all of those dead being put in bags. People I had known, people I had loved. God knows I never wanted to be there in the first place. I never wanted to go to Guyana to die. I didn't think Jim would do anything like that. He let us down. There was also a group of church membership that had went to Georgetown from Jonestown. Of all things, a basketball tournament, that kind of seemed odd, but that's where Stephen Gandhi Jones, which was his son that I uh, referred to, kind of was, I don't know, the captain, the, the main, the leader of that group. Uh, he became very upset with his father's recent behavior, as Bill had spoken about, his, 
his his health had went down his mental stability was getting off the rails and even Stephen's mother who stayed back uh and was one of those taken in in that tragic day told her son that day go while you have the chance this is not going to end well and no matter what don't come back well ironically Jones asked to speak to his son there on the CB radio in Georgetown, and he commanded them to return. And in the background, he could hear his mother, who was saying what Jim Jones wanted her to say. You know, no, you need to come back here. You need. But he says, I remembered what she privately, secretly whispered in my ear, no matter what anyone tells you, do not come back. So that's how he survived. His mother, of course, died. But he was the one that I referred to that it wasn't a suicide. It was a murder by his father. Absolutely. I don't think you could say that was mass suicide. That was engineered. And and he is responsible for their deaths. Again, just the the mind is not ready to see that that scale of death. I I understand absolutely how soldiers in in battle can come back scarred. Because if you see, I mean... Again, you see the pictures, and, and they, they really hit hard. It's just that many people lying there. Well, as you said, you know, we've done podcasts on serial killers, and I don't know by definition, I, would this classify as a serial killer? This, is, this would be mass murderer. This gave me nightmares. This, I'll be well, straight up it, it honest. Was, it was the first one that was really hard for me to finish the notes because there were moments where I legit got upset like reading some of the stuff and the fact that he could do this and the fact that they followed him. And, and again, I know we try not to be political, but I am very terrified of, of, of the implications of something like this, because we see things like this now where people who can absolutely give you false information and you, and people have to know it's false and they still follow it and listen to it. Like it's gospel and it's very, very frightening in this day and age. Well, and as you say, we, we try not to be political, but one of my my beefs is like again if we erase history we're bound to repeat it and this yeah. is an example of the cruelty horrific events that just simply shouldn't well, have ever been he, he got in their head and he gave them an enemy and he made that enemy so terrifying that rather than risk facing that enemy they decided to kill themselves and their children i mean let's be honest if the government had shown up the United States had raided said said settlement. Those people would not have been separated from their kids. They would have been taken somewhere to be deprogrammed, right? And and maybe some of the kids society some, some of the point. kids might have been taken for their own safety, but it would have been for the safety of the children. It wouldn't have been to take them and and make them but monsters again, or murder. That's that charismatic Jim Jones. He so. puts the spin on whatever he needs to say to get you to believe. Now, if you want to watch a movie that kind of represents this. I believe it's called The Sacrament. Yes. It might still be on Netflix. I can't remember. It was on Netflix when I watched it. I can't remember where I watched it. I actually did watch it for this podcast. There's a movie called The Sacrament, and I feel... I didn't realize it when I started watching the movie what it was going to be. It is not about Jonestown specifically, but it is... You absolutely could plug in Jonestown and, and see the parallels. This movie is meant to be about Jonestown, including, you know, the group leaving in the truck and getting gunned down on the plane. I mean, that's all there. And for lack of a better way to explain it, it's kind of got a little bit of a Blair Witch style filming at points where they're running yeah, it's, and it's trying like to being escape. It's as a and, documentary, basically. But I but will it's, say it's not about Jonestown, but it's it's it, it tells the same story. I watched that movie first. I don't know how to politically politely put this. That was horrible. The movie yeah. was horrible, but yeah. 
with the outcome. The movie wasn't a bad movie, but yeah. the outcome obviously was horrible. But it kind of displayed that there was, you know, maybe a hundred, a hundred and ten people's lives there, lost. There's a lot less. Well, and I'm sure for so budgetary it reasons, you could pay off a thousand people. But yeah, it, it it's Jonestown on a smaller scale, but it is absolutely yeah. the Jonestown story. So I went into doing the research for Jonestown, and I'm expecting okay, there's 100 to 200 people. No, there was like 908 or whatever. It's and, like, and, oh my gosh. And the Jim Jim Jones character in that movie, and I don't remember what they call him. I'm sure father was well, father. Yeah, but he was unsettling to say the least. Yes, just looking at him, they 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 picked a perfect actor but, for, for but that. Yeah, the it it's it's sort of represents what happened it's, it's a fictionalized it's not about jonestown but it's i mean if you watch it after hearing the story you absolutely can see the parallels that it, it's meant to be the jonestown story so again the the frightening implications that there are people with a level of charisma that can just get people to listen to whatever they say believe whatever they say i mean it's scary and 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 honestly with the status of the world today and and, and the way things are going yeah, it is is very very frightening, you know that 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 things like this could happen. We're gonna call this a wrap on yet another nightmares on the lost highway. Be safe out there. You were you were giving us the background on the pimp the 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 temple the pimple. <laughs> Shut up, <Aaron. laughs> the temple. There they would be untested, secluded, and able to live. Undisputed, uh, undis- un- I can't talk. There, they would be able to l- be left undistributed to live their lives peacefully. Undisturbed. You said distributed. <laughs> he once had himself briefly incarcerated at Folsom State Prison. Oh, oh. Incarcerated. What I say? Carcinated. Incarcerated. Johnny Carcinated. <laughs> We'd like to give a shout out to our first uh, paying sponsor, Raven's Loft. That's our family shop here located in uh, London, Missouri. It's your one-stop gaming, vintage toy, and collectible shop where you can find Star Wars, Transformers, G.I. Joe, comics, vinyl records, role-play gaming, Magic the Gathering, and so much more. We're located here at 223 West Commercial, downtown Lebanon, and also in our second location, uh, also here in Lebanon, at the Heartland Antique Mall. We'd like to thank Ravensloft for again supporting Nightmares on the Lost Highway. I want to take a time to thank the people that helped bring this all together. Uh, Alex Tudor, you can almost call him our producer at this point. Sarah Tudor, who also helps with some of the technical stuff. I want to take a moment to extend thanks to Eric for letting us use his space to record in kind of our makeshift studio. I, in turn, would like to thank Bill for, one, putting up with me and uh, using this camaraderie to do something we both very much love and enjoy doing. And thank Bill's family for allowing him to spend all the time to work and clean up our recordings and present them in what uh, you hear in the final uh, terms, uh, the final edition, if you will. Um, And I'd like to thank all of you for continuing to, to listen. I know we've got some loyal followers out there. We do this as a labor of love, but we're, we're happy that there are people that enjoy it as, hopefully as much as we do. Thank you very much.